Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cagliano. How are you doing, Frank? I'm fit as a fiddle, David. Thank you very much. Right. So earlier this week, we had the first day of testimony in the House Select Special Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. There was some really uh, gripping and moving testimony from four uh, Capitol Police officers detailing their, their experience that day. Uh, we will have more testimony and evidence presented in the, the days and weeks to come. Uh, but we thought we might use this opportunity to reflect both on, on what happened earlier this week, but also to think about what the antecedents are for this kind of congressional investigation uh, into, in some ways, a historical event, in this case, what happened on, on January 6th, uh, but also sort of what Congress's role in, in all of this is. Yes, I'm... Before we before we undertake that exercise, David, and it's an important one, and I in no way mean to um, uh, undermine the uh, importance and, and frankly the harrowing nature of what we heard on Tuesday. Hmm. We need to agree on a name for this commission in the sense that you know, like the nine eleven commission was the nine eleven commission, and you know that that was a shorthand. I, I was thinking about just as you were talking in, in introducing this commission, hmm. you. you you gave me word salad. It was the bipartisan, you know, whatever. Uh, we need it. We need a short. We need as as a culture to agree on a name for this. Do you, the, or do the, we the, the January sixth commission? Is I, that what it is? I guess. Um, Should we call it one six because we talk about nine eleven? It doesn't. That doesn't. That doesn't roll off the tongue, no. right? Okay. And odds are there will be other investigations into to these events by maybe in the Senate and then other bodies. So we may have this may be one of multiple. Several. Several commissions investigating. I, I guess we've agreed to call the events on that day, January sixth, as a shorthand, haven't we? Or, or as the insurrection, I guess, is the right. other uh, name that I, that I hear more often than than others. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, anyway, I don't want to belabor things. So, with congressional with committees tend to have awful names, and I'll share an awful name of one later on. That that's. That it gets called to me else entirely because the, the real name is stupid. Um, so what's the purpose of this committee? I mean, I think one thing that, that people may wonder about is, well, why is Congress doing this? We obviously have criminal prosecutions happening of people who, who invaded the Capitol. Why is Congress investigating this criminal act? Well, in the first instance, I mean, the, Congress was attacked on January 6th. So, so if there were an attack, and God forbid this should happen, if there were an attack on the, uh, the University of Edinburgh, mm. you would imagine the University of Edinburgh would establish some sort of committee to examine what happened. Don't give any right? listeners any no, ideas. No, no, absolutely not. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. <laughs> but, but, you know, so when a large institution is subject to this kind mm. of attack, it's the ob you know it, uh, it is an obvious thing to do so on one hand the the, the, the rationale for this committee seems plain as day frankly mm. uh, you know the institution itself was subject to an attack on January 6 and getting to the bottom of that would seem to be especially given that that institution has its own security presence in the Capitol police force and it and it's uh, also interacts with the local police in, in the city of Washington mm. and, and so on. There are questions to be asked and answered about that. So so it seems to me that's obvious. On the other hand, as undoubtedly we're mm. about to see, there have been congressional and presidential commissions, investigative committees or special commissions mm. on all manner of things relating to the United States. Uh, uh, and, and so Congress, as the people's... Um, House, it's the legislature of the United States. You know, would you know, as we're going to see in the next few minutes, considers itself as having a pretty broad remit when it comes mm. to investigating things that impact the everyday lives of Americans. Uh, and so, it, it's it seems entirely appropriate as far as what its remit is. It's got a relatively narrow remit. They're trying to examine. They're trying to recover what happened on the day mm. itself, and there are many, many conflicting accounts about that, of course but also to examine the immediate run-up to it, so the kind of causes of it. They're not talking about the causes of it, at least not yet, in terms of uh, the alienation of the electorate or these kinds of things or polarization and, and the political polarization so much as, okay, who called whom 
you know, between the election last November and the outbreak on uh, the insurrection on the 6th of January. Um, so I think they've got a relatively narrow remit looking at the events on the day and the immediate mm. causes of those events. It seemed to be wholly appropriate to me. Well, would right. you yeah, agree? I, I would agree with that. Um, I mean, it's actually there's three purposes that are there, depending on who you ask, about what's going on. One is a sort of historical process of, of documenting what happened, collecting testimony, collecting evidence, um, and doing so in a public fashion. So it's a, it's a public inquiry into a, an event in the recent past. Um, and that's going to be very useful for historians in the future. Absolutely. Undoubtedly, the testimony from Tuesday is going to be used by historians who are writing about this period 100 years from now, 500 years from now, to sort of explain and understand that event. Um, and previous commissions, uh, uh, similar kinds of bodies that we'll talk about today, well, historians use that material all the time. It's really valuable. Um, there's also a sort of a legis I mean, the, the constitutional structure for this. There's a legislative purpose for it. It's, it's you're doing this investigation so you can then prevent future attacks like this from happening by changing laws and doing, uh, you know, understanding the circumstances that, that made this possible. Improving security, changing how the police is structured and who it reports to, and the National Guard and the whole thing. Um, the third purpose, and, and I think we can't really ignore this, uh, and this is something obviously the Republicans are claiming, and I think there's at least a grain of truth, that there's an inherently political purpose to all of this, right? And we can't divorce anything Congress does from the the political objectives, um, whether we agree with those objectives or not, of the people who are involved, right? Or choose not to be involved. Or who choose not to be involved, exactly, right? So, and, and choosing not to be involved is a way of being involved. Um, you know, the, these commission, this commission uh, and committee and, and its antecedents are, are always inherently political bodies because that politicians are interested in, in, in their own political careers, they're interested in their the advancement of their political party and their ideology, etc. Uh, and this case is, is a, an excellent example of that because, you know, this was a, a very partisan event that happened on January 6th. The supporters of, of President Trump, now former President Trump, you know, tried to stop Congress from engaging in its uh, activities by, you know, physically attacking the, the Capitol during a session of Congress. Um, and threaten the lives of many members of Congress and obviously the, the lives of, of the people who are defending the members of Congress. Um, you know, how we read that event is, uh, is going to have political consequences. It's going to have election consequences for the congressional midterms. It's going to have uh, consequences for the next presidential race. It's, there's all kinds of consequences. Yeah, and some of the coverage I've, I've seen of the testimony on Tuesday made that very point, saying that... Republicans are fairly optimistic that they, they may well retake the House next year in, in the elections. Whether that optimism is justified or not, is we leave that to the mm. pundits and pollsters to work out. However, every day they spend talking about the events on January 6th doesn't help them achieve that goal. Right. Conversely, you would say if you, the Democrats, every day you're talking about January 6th, is bad for the Republicans. And so there is a partisan, there's certainly a partisan dimension to this it's not always one can argue I mean, we need to mm. we need to go back in history now and, and, and look at the history of some of these commissions i think one might make a distinction between the kind of committees that congress sets up to investigate matters mm. and those kind of if you will blue ribbon commissions that are either created by congress or by the president uh to be independent mm. to deal with major issues i mean the the, the most recent prominent examples probably the 9-11 commission which we'll be talking about sure. which deliberately present themselves as being above politics you may well say okay well people who say they're above politics are still being political well, yes. and i think that's i think you're right but i think there's a i think there is a distinction to be made we need to think about this as we as we go through the kind of examples we're about to review between those that are intend to be above politics <laughs> And those that seem to be more explicitly partisan. You give me a yeah. Well, I mean, I think all, all it depends. It depends on what the event is they're investigating and how 
But let's not, let's talk about one of the yeah. Let's go back. Let's, let's, let's get put some historical meat on these meat bones. bones. All right. So so when we go back to to when did Congress first do a, a commission that looks similar to this? Well, one? the earliest one of these that I could find, and it's not an exact analog, but it's it, it, it's curious, is in 1794 after the Whiskey Rebellion, from <laughs> which we, we take our very name. Very appropriate. And, and okay. So after the 1794 Whiskey Rebellion. Uh, President then President Washington recommended that there be an investigation into the origins of the rebellion. Now Washington, as you may well remember, David, um, placed placed the blame on self-created societies, blamed it on on uh, the so-called Democratic Republican societies, which were basically political clubs created by the opposition. Yes. So we're back to everything being political uh, that were modeled on the Jacobin clubs of revolutionary France. And so there was a belief on the part of Washington and the Federalists that uh, the political opposition was organizing political violence mm. um, along modeled on what the events that were going that had happened recently happened in France and that a revolution might have been in an offing in the offing in the United States a violent revolution and so there was there are interesting echoes mm. um, to my mind about. Uh, the events of 1794 and more recent events in, in U.S. politics because there was this belief on the part of the two political parties that neither was actually legitimate, <laughs> that their, their opposites weren't legitimate and were threatening violence and threatening to overthrow the government. And, you know, in, in the case of the Whiskey Rebellion, there was some violence. There was an attempt to shut down courts and things like that. So the, the belief is not without merit. And there are elements of the Whiskey Rebellion, I think, that are echoed in the events of January 6th. I wouldn't want to push this too far, not least because the Whiskey Rebell Rebels didn't attack Philadelphia, the capital of the country. Right. Uh, they were active in western Pennsylvania and the main. There were re rebellions elsewhere, or there was unrest elsewhere. But, uh, but we get the first one of these commissions is actually looking at a domestic insurrection. And how well did it work as a commission? I've got to confess, I don't know a whole lot about it. I mean, okay. I, I think they, you know, they... they it worked fine, okay. you know, and they got the finding they wanted. I have, uh, but but it wasn't. It was not a prolonged commission. Uh, is one thing which is okay. interesting because some of these things have become much much uh, uh, become institutions unto themselves and produce lengthy reports. But they did gather information, which has been useful to historians in writing the sure. history of the of the whiskey rebellion. I think these things really gather steam. I mean, your century, the 19th century, is a great age of committees, among other things. Think, yes, they, have a lot, they have a lot of committees. <laughs> and, and paperwork. So, and, and it seems to me that the, the more... So although we can look to the Whiskey Rebellion Commission as, as an early antecedent yeah. for this, I think it re they really get rolling in your period. So give us well, give us a flavor of these. There, there's two from the Civil War that really yeah. sort of jump out to me. And there's, there's lots of these commissions in the Civil War. Uh, in part, in thinking about the comparison with the one today... You know, these are it's a, at a very partisan time, and so you know these are our very divided committees. Um, the first of them is a, a congressional a select committee of the Senate that's appointed in the aftermath of uh, John Brown's raid and Harper's Ferry. So John Brown's raid happens in, in October. Another incident of domestic violence. Yes, uh, you know, which is right. domestic political violence. Yeah, well, and so you know, the raid happens in October. Right? John Brown is executed in, in on December second. Congress then sort of reconvenes uh, shortly thereafter, and they create this Senate Select Committee to investigate what happened, both what happened at Harper's Ferry, but also, you know, who was supporting John Brown and his followers. You know, and the, the supposition that many Democrats had was John Brown was being supported by Republicans, that Republicans are to blame for Harper's Ferry. And, of course, this is a commission that, that is created in December of, of 1859, right before what's going to be the most important election in American history. There are uh, five members of this committee, uh, three Democrats uh, and two Republicans. Uh, the chair of the committee is a guy named James Mason, who was best known for being the author of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. It's kind of no, we know where he's going to stand on things. Uh, another member of the committee, Jefferson Davis of Mississippi. We know Never we, heard of him. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever happened to him? him. <laughs> he, he left that job in the Senate shortly thereafter uh, for other opportunities that didn't work out so well for him. He wanted um, to spend more time with, with his, his family. family. Uh, something like that, yes. Uh, he and Verena had a good time in Richmond for four years, sort of. Um, 
But from the very beginning, this is a hyper-partisan committee where the, the, the Democrats in the committee are very much trying to tie John Brown to the Republican Party and say, look, it's not just this one guy and his followers who are to, to blame for what they saw as a, a, a slave insurrection, but it's this entire political party that is, is by its very nature, directly and indirectly supporting John Brown. The Republic- so, sorry, David, yeah. if I can just make an observation before you, uh, yeah. uh, apologies for interrupting, but again, if we're drawing a through line between some of these events, I, yeah. mean, I think there is a through line between the, from the Whiskey Rebellion to what you're discussing mm. to the events of January 6th, and that what we're seeing is the accusation by one political party, and I'm not getting into the, the specifics of what those parties mm. stand for necessarily, against their opponents or in response to violence by their opponents or people associated with their opponents saying, you know, you're not playing, you've, your violence, your, your resort to violence is beyond the pale. Exactly. This is right. unacceptable. Yes. And so, so I think if there's a consistent theme in the three examples we've got before us thus far, mm. it's that. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that is fair. Right. Okay. Sorry, um, carry so on. They, 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 they have a bunch of witnesses, um, 32 of them. Um, they weren't actually able to get many people they wanted to testify to testify. They tried very hard to get people that were John Brown's sort of associates. John Brown had this bag with him that had a bunch of letters and names of various people in it. And they tried to find some of these uh, associates of John Brown. Um, some of whom ran away to various places. One went to Canada. They actually arrest one guy named uh, Thaddeus Hyatt, who was a acquaintance of John Brown, who refuses to testify. He says, look, this looks like a judicial hearing, not a congressional hearing. Uh, I'm No, I'm not taking part. They throw him in jail. Congress, the Senate throws him in jail. Um, Hyatt seems to be fairly well connected and fair and, and moderately wealthy. He he was an inventor who worked on uh, reinforced concrete, so he had a decent amount of money. So he spends uh, three months in the D.C. jail, but he gets his 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 brother and and other friends to send him stuff. So he has a lavish time. He has lots of visitors. He spends the time drinking cider and reading books. Um, but the committee ends after after five months essentially. Uh, without really, they have issue a report with interviews and whatnot that are useful to historians. But in terms of, you know, the political objectives that, that the Democrats had in forming the commission, they, they don't, they aren't able to link the Republican Party uh, to to John Brown uh, explicitly. Uh, but they have a, a majority report, a minority report, and they read very differently about, you know, what the origins were of of, of John Brown's raid and how to make sense of it. I don't know whether you have this level of detail um, in terms of the in your knowledge of this, David, but in, in terms of the two reports, is one more credible than the other? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think they're both very political documents, right? And so I think you you got to read both the reports and the testimony in a you know the, recognize that the testimony is not being given in a vacuum. The the you know, some of the factual things you can get from it are very useful in terms of, you know, where is the, how is the U.S. Army responding to various things and, you know, when did the train stop and, and when did John Brown's people arrive in various places. That stuff is very useful. But, you know, when people are asked to, to evaluate the evidence, that some of that is, is, is trickier. In some ways, it was kind, you know, this whole, the, the John Brown investigation, the Harper's Ferry investigation, in some ways was kind of a witch hunt, right? They're trying to find supporters, especially financial supporters of John Brown, and link that to, to the Republican Party so they can do political damage. The other big sort of investigation from the Civil War that strikes me as, as being very relevant to the one today is um, the Ku Klux Klan hearings in 1871. Uh, the official name for this, this is the Joint Select Committee to Inquire into the Conditions of Affairs in the Late Insurrectionary States. So is that the name you were... Yeah, that was the name I was looking for, right, yes. Yeah. Which is not what anybody calls it. They call it the Klan hearings, um, or the Klan Committee. Wait, can you, sorry, read that name again? The Joint Select Committee to Inquire into the Conditions of Affairs in the Late Insurrectionary States. Right, okay. Rolls off the tongue. Exactly, <laughs> right. It's, it's going to be it take up half the page on the, the letterhead. Um, the background to this was that the, the Klan uh, is, of course, established in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, but it had ramped up violence uh, in the 1870 election, and 
especially in South Carolina, but across the South. Thousands of people are killed. Thousands more are, are, are terrified by the actions of the Klan. Uh, it's a real effort to, to undermine that election's integrity uh, by, by either in, intimidating voters, intimidating candidates, or killing both. Um, this committee, uh, which has 21 members, it's headed by uh, John Scott, a Republican from Pennsylvania. Uh, they do a massive investigation into the Klan uh, that lasts for the better part of a year. They get 7,000 pages of testimony in, in 13 volumes. Um, so a tremendous amount of testimony from uh, African-Americans about their experience being terrified of the Klan, of, of violence against them and their family members and their communities, testimony by uh, white Republicans in the South who, who were similarly being targeted by the Klan. Uh, we also, Do they have any Klan testimony? We had, they, had, they interviewed people who, who they thought were associated with the Klan. And it's clear, put it to me at least, if you read some of that testimony, people are lying. Right. One person they, they interviewed was Nathan Bedford Forrest, who is um, one of the people who founded the Klan, among other awful things that he did. Uh, and they asked him about the Klan. He said, oh, never, never heard of it. No idea. Not involved. Don't, don't know. I'm just in waste management. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> never heard of this organization. I'm retired from my uh, previous career as a slave trader. Right. Um, and again, there's, there's a, a majority report that says... Uh, look, uh, this is horrible what is happening. We need to take immediate action to uh, strengthen laws to protect African Americans and to protect the integrity of the voting process in the South. And that actually leads to some really meaningful legislation, including the what is called the Ku Klux Klan Act, um, which authorizes the president, among other things, to use military force to suppress the Klan, to suspend habeas corpus, uh, to, uh, you know, in, in, in the process of suppressing the Klan. It also sort of leads to a, a growth in what we now think of as the Justice Department, which emerges in Reconstruction as a response to Klan violence in the South. Um, so that's what the majority said. And so there's actual meaningful legislation as a consequence of it. Interestingly enough, the Klan Act from 1871 is now being used against among other things, President Trump and several members of Congress, uh, Republican members of Congress, for their actions in relation to January 6th, because they were using violence and threats of violence to interfere with uh, election results, which is one of the things that, that the Klan Act covers. So, David, in terms of your three-part well, analysis... A, yeah, there's a minority report, though. though right, okay, sorry. The so minority clear. report says, actually, the problem is not the Klan, the problem is African-Americans. And the minority report says, first, the African-Americans who testified, they're all lying. They said that there's no basis to believe them. He said, look, the committee paid for them to come to D.C. to testify or came come to other places to testify. And therefore, we cannot trust their testimony at all because they paid their train fare. So they, they discredit all the witnesses. And they say that there is a the, the phrasing from the minority report is there is a black horde that needs to be suppressed in the South, and what you know any violence that's being done to do that is fine. So, in terms of your, the, you laid out kind of with respect to the, the January sixth commission yeah. that there are kind of this, these things operate on three levels. I'm I'm going to asking you to apply these sure. three levels to to the Klan report. So we have the. Kind of getting the record, getting as much down on the record as possible, and that benefits historians. We have the um, policy changes that may or may not arise mm. as a result of um, said investigation, and finally the political context. Can you just well? So in terms uh, of address of, those, yes. In terms of uh, of the you know historical evidence, you know, if we want to, if we want to understand the Klan during this period, one of the main sources that historians have used are these seven thousand pages of, of reports. I mean, I, I've used these um, in, in my own research. I've used this in class because you can excerpt various uh, parts of, of them, and they're they're really gripping testimony, uh, really powerful, and obviously, you know, that we don't have a huge amount of evidence from the Klan side of things, and so this because uh, secret organizations don't tend to keep good records. Um, so it's a very valuable source for historians, I think, in terms of they did a tremendous job there. This is one of those cases where the commission ends up with 
really important legislation and, and policy changes, many of which, as I point out, are with us today and are still relevant. Um, you know, and there were political consequences, you know, in terms of, of, of how that shaped the, the election in 1872 and in subsequent elections. So this is, I think, a, a, it was one of those cases where the, the committee work, and there were some issues with it, but the committee work was, you know, fundamentally did what it was intended to do and, and, and led to meaningful uh, results. Uh, but it was, as as like all of these things are, a very partisan endeavor, as the sort of minority report indicates. Right, fascinating. Because I mean, I think I think the the Klan investigation or commission really does speak to the current moment in, in a lot of ways because it was it, it, the response to violence and the political context. So, undoubtedly, we'll return to but, that. But you know, it's very different than the Harper's Ferry one, which we, you know they're both political, but you know, one was dying to try to link somebody to violence that may or may not have connection than the Klan one, they you know, actually were able to link the, make, make the link stick. Uh, we've got to move on, but sure. tell us about, because this is something that came up in our, in our pre-show conversation, and, and you know this and I don't, so I want, to, I want you to tell our listeners, tell us about the Titanic Commission. Okay, the Titanic, com- the Titanic Commission's great. Um, maybe not, it's awful for people dying in the Titanic, but um, so I think all, everyone knows the Titanic uh, hit an iceberg sunk on the 14th and 15th of April in 1912. News that Titanic had sunk uh, reaches uh, the U.S. Uh, immediately thereafter because of, of shortwave radio and other things. And so when the ship that's carrying the survivors arrives in New York Harbor, the, I think it's the Carpathia, they are greeted by a Senate committee with Just subpoenas after you've survived a shipwreck. Uh, well, I mean, I think they only gave <laughs> subpoenas mostly to, the, to like the crew members and stuff. The guy, you know, the, the CEO of, of uh, the White Star Line or whatever. Um, but there's a, a Senate inquiry into the Titanic uh, that was led by Senator William Alden Smith. Um, Sorry, David, if I can stop you because yes. this gets to the. Why do they have standing to do this? I mean, I know there were Americans on the ship, but it happened in international waters. It's you know, it's a part of the UK. What's what's? You know, uh, why are the, they sticking their noses in? Because I think they wanted to, right? I mean, I think it was you know, I think there was a well, there was a public outcry about the Titanic. You know, it was front page news. Americans were interested in what happened, and you know, I think Congress recognizes uh, political opportunities when it sees it. So I think part of it was maybe political opportunism, but you know, people wanted to understand how did this happen. This ship was uh, co-owned by, by an American corporation. So, um, you know, I think they have... Congress, I think, has standing to investigate whatever the hell it wants. Right, I mean, that gets back to our your original question about about the, the, the January 6th commission. Um, they have 18 days of, of testimony in the Titanic uh, investigation, both in New York and in, and in D.C. They have a number of witnesses. Um, Senator Smith, who was the chair of the committee, was mocked for, for, I think he was from somewhere in the Midwest, didn't really know a whole lot about the shipping industry or how ships were built. And so he asked lots of what were claimed by outsiders to be uh, kind of stupid questions about, about how, how ships were constructed. Uh, at one point, he asked one of the, the uh, sailors about what, what an iceberg was made out of. And I think he said, I think it's made out of ice, sir. Um, it was seen in some ways as an attack on the British merchant uh, at the marine industry in Britain. Um, and there were some criticisms of the committee in the British press because uh, they said, look, why are you investigating this? We should be investigating this. Um, but there are actually some British people who are very happy about it because they said, look, here in Britain we would have a committee, but it would be in private and secret, and nobody would find out what the results are here. The Americans are doing it out in the open, even if it makes us look bad. And they had all kinds of recommendations about having you know, enough lifeboats and making sure that things were constructed in certain ways. So there were, were meaningful results to that. But I think that's another sort of example of, you know, here's a historical event and immediately thereafter having a committee that, that's examining, you know, how did this happen and what can we do to prevent it from happening in the future? Um, let's bring it up to, to, the, to the present. I think there's two from the, the well, one from the t- mid-20th century and one from the early 20th, 21st century we need to talk about. The uh, first is the, the Warren Commission, which is a commission created by the president and by Congress, but doesn't actually feature, it features some members of Congress, but isn't a 
congressional committee? Well, this is this is the and the Warren Commission is created by Lyndon Johnson to examine the the assassination of John Kennedy, and I think that's a good example of what's intended to be a bipartisan mm. commission. And the reason it doesn't, not just bipartisan, but it's a, it's separate from Congress. It's working on behalf of the government, but it's not of the government. Right. Um, and, and that is a route that I think um, Congress could have gone mm. in terms of January 6th. And we, we may talk about why they didn't. But I think that's one where it's meant to be addressing a question in the national interest and being above partisanship. Right. Um, it's crucially important for President Johnson because, of course, from the moment that um, John Kennedy was shot in Dallas, mm. and of course Johnson's home state, um, you know, the conspiracies arose almost immediately about the circumstances of Kennedy's death, and the Warren Commission was meant to be kind of put those to bed, but also it had to be separate from the government and separate from President Johnson mm. if it was to have credibility, but also that would benefit President Johnson because it would seemingly uh, vindicate him. So, so the Warren Commission is, is a good example of, of a slightly different model in that it's in response to a mm. recent event uh, with clear political implications in, in the contemporary moment in which it was created, but also is meant to be above politics. Yeah. I and mean, the Warren Commission ended all the conspiracy theories, right, David? <laughs> so, so that was that. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, for, for, for listeners, the, the commission met for the better part of a year. They end up, they get appointed a week after the assassination. They issue an 888-page report that basically said that... It was a bestseller? It was a bestseller. And, uh, that said that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone, um, that, that, that uh, Jack Ruby acted alone. Um, you know, and even though it was uh, independent of the government, it was also made up of people from the government. So, well, it's the, the chief, wise man, isn't it? It's, 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 it's well. So he had Earl Warren, who was, was the chief justice, not an, uh, a, a non-controversial figure. I mean, Earl Warren no. was extraordinarily divisive because of, of various decisions he made, both before this commission and and subsequent to it. Uh, Alan Dulles, who was the former head of the CIA, Gerald Ford, who later goes on to do other things, um, was on it, but, but he was a leading uh, member of Congress at the time. Um, and I think like these earlier commissions, there's a tremendous amount of evidence we have, not only from the report, but from 26 volumes of supporting documents, which were originally classified, but have sub subsequently been uh, declassified. So we have a lot of stuff. Um, but I think you're right, though, that even if it's there's a lot of evidence there, you know, no sooner had the commission issued its report, people said, no, this is nonsense. There's 37 conspiracy theories about how, you know, President Kennedy was killed. Yeah, so it didn't it didn't address, the, you know, if that was one of the uh, intentions of the creator of that commission, creators of that commission, then it, did, it certainly didn't achieve that. But again, I, I it might be because we're historians. I think one of the really important roles, possibly mm. the most important roles that these kind of commissions fulfill is just getting stuff on the record. Yeah, I think that's that's and it, it did it did achieve that. The other one that's often held up is from the early twenty first century, mm. and of course, it's the nine eleven commission. Yeah, you and I off air had a little bit of a disagreement about this. Uh, the nine eleven commission, I think, is the immediate um, kind of analog mm. for or no, it's not an analog to what's happening now, but it's the it's the template against which the current events need to be viewed. Uh, of, of the January 6th Commission. So the, the 9-11 Commission was bipartisan. In fact, it was to some extent nonpartisan in the sense that it brought together many political figures, but many of them had been previous office holders. Yeah, and they're they, all retired from Yeah, office, so. so these were these were the, you know, wise men and now wise mm. women who were on this commission that were brought together to investigate particularly not dissimilar to January 6th, what happened on the day, mm. but also to look at why it happened. And, and so not just the conspiracy, the Al-Qaeda conspiracy that produced the attacks, but also the intelligence failures that allowed it to happen, most especially. And 
my own take on this is that the and the nine eleven commission, similar to the Warren mm. Commission, produced a lengthy report that was a bestseller. Yes, and to a certain extent is of uh, is invaluable to historians when it comes to trying to understand nine eleven. I mean, mm. it's probably the most important document we have relating to nine eleven. And reform of the um, of the U.S. In, uh, of the way U.S. intelligence was organized, it was more bureaucratic reform, is one of the consequences in the aftermath of the 9/11 report. So I think I my own view was the 9/11 report was probably more successful, and the 9/11 Commission and its mm. report were more successful than you think. Is that correct? Well, I don't want I don't yes. want to put words in your mouth, but no, I, I mean I, I the, the 9/11 Commission I think did did very important work. I think the report is very important, but there, there's some elements to it that I think that are worth highlighting. Um, one is it actually took a long time to set this commission up. It didn't meet until November of 2002. So it met didn't meet until more than a year after the events in question, which compared to some of these other events that we've been talking about, whether that's the Titanic or the Warren Commission or, or Harper's Ferry. Or uh, January 6th. Or January 6th. You know, you know, these are all much closer to the events. And, and part of the reason why it took so long to set it up was, you know, negotiating what the terms were for the 9-11 Commission, what they were allowed to investigate, what they were not allowed to investigate, who's going to be on the commission. At one point, like they had Henry Kissinger was going to chair it, and then he said, decided he didn't want to do it because they, they were making demands of him. You know, there was one member of the commission who resigned because he said this commission isn't really doing its work. Um, so so the, I think there was that element of it that was problematic. I, I'm troubled by the fact that some of the people were allowed to testify before the committee, but not under oath and not having the testimony recorded. Specifically, Cheney and, and George W. Bush uh, said, look, they're, they're, they're willing to be testify in the Oval Office, but, but not for the record. Um, Condoleezza Rice initially said she was not going to testify, and eventually, but eventually she did. Um, but... Uh, you know, there was some reluctance for people to to actually participate with the commission. Um, they also used evidence that was obtained through the use of torture, which you know is problematic on all kinds of levels, as as we know. Um, and the report, while it's uh, very important reading, and if you haven't read it, it's definitely still worth reading. I get the impression that it pulls its punches at times, and I think part of that is the sort of ways in which the committee was trying to not step on anyone's toes too much. Yeah, but let me push back a little bit on that, David, mm. in the sense that, I mean, if I think if one thing's become clear in, in this discussion, it's all these reports, you, you could make that criticism of all these reports, or you end up with a situation where you get a majority and minority report which present two different views of reality. And so to some extent, if you're going to have a single commission or committee report, mm. there's a degree of uh, negotiation and cooperation that goes on to produce those. And so every committee, you've served on committees, I've served yes, on committees. Yes, yes. You know, we, we, pulling punctures is what committees do sometimes. That's also true. Um, uh, so, I've, so never, I, I've never served on a committee that was of, of that level of consequence. I suspect not. No, 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 no nor have I. Uh, but but I, 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 I suppose... I'd shrug and say, well, that's politics and that's committee work and that's the, that's mm. the way things go. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but on balance, this commission did its work. And, well, I, and I think, sorry, go ahead. No, well, no, one thing, though, that I think is, because people are making lots of comparisons between the, the, the January 6th insurrection and, and the committee and committees that are going to form from that and the 9-11 commission, is that some of the people, I think, who participated in January 6th, you know, are still in Congress in some ways, depending on how you want to sort of attribute uh, responsibility, blame, uh, call it what you want. Whereas, you know, the 9-11 Commission report didn't have a member of Al-Qaeda there to, to justify uh, the attack. No, that's right. I mean, I think that's, well, let, let's talk about January 6th, because I think mm. that's interesting. So if people remember, and it was only six months ago, but it seems like a lifetime, in the immediate aftermath of the January 6th insurrection, mm. Kevin McCarthy, the House Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, the House, the, sorry, the, the Senate Republican leader, uh, Lindsey Graham, noted Trump suck up. Mm. All of these people, leading members of the Republican Party, actually condemned President Trump. They condemned the violence and they condemned President Trump. Lindsey Graham said, I will have nothing more to do with him. 
uh, or words to that effect. I think they've had dinner together. Since they have had dinner. no, no. Well, this I'm building up to this. Yeah, yeah, so, okay, so yes, they each said, you know, and and the kind of consensus that emerged very briefly in Washington was, okay, we do need a commission, and 9-11 was often mm. cited, to get to the bottom of this. And the expectation in sort of February of this mm. year was that we would have a 9-11-style commission to investigate the insurrection on January 6th. And then as the months passed, and so, so the House passed the legislation to create the commission, and Mitch McConnell invoke the filibuster mm. so everything ties together use the filibuster to block the creation of this commission uh and so the the uh, the original intention to create a bipartisan mm. commission presumably an independent a commission independent of congress was scuppered by the republicans or particularly mitch mcconnell and the senate republicans but i think with the support of the of the republicans in congress uh, in the house as well because they, they changed positions. They moved away from their original position of saying, this is terrible, we have to get to the bottom of it, to saying, something happened, it might have been Antifa, it might not. <laughs> and, and, Tourists, yeah, we'll never get to the, We'll never yeah. get to the bottom of it, and we need to move on. Now, let's move on. Hmm. Um, and, and, and the reason for that, I think we're back to politics. Hmm. But as a result, uh, Nancy Pelosi, as the Speaker of the House, then... Um, created a commission, which was originally supposed to have Republican representation on it. And the Republicans involved, who were who were nominated by Kevin McCarthy, notably Jim Jordan, who, again, we're back to, okay, well, there were no members of Al-Qaeda on the 9-11 commission. Jim Jordan might be a witness in this thing because Jim Jordan's car, car connection to Donald Trump in December and January of yeah. 2020-21 is really important. Yeah, Jim Jordan called President Trump during the during insurrection. The insurrection. Right? Yeah, so, that's right. So, so anyway, there was there was a prolonged dispute about um, whether Republicans would participate and which Republicans would participate. In the end, most congressional Republicans said they would not participate, and the, the, the congressional Republican caucus basically said we won't have anything to do with this. And Nancy Pelosi named two Republican members of this of this committee. Um, Liz Cheney of, of Wyoming, who's been essentially alienated from her party despite yes. her conservatism uh, because of her criticism of President Trump, and Adam Kinzinger of, of Illinois. So there are two Republicans on this committee, but they, are, I think, by virtue of their participation in this committee, will have severed all ties with the Republican Party as a consequence. It's, it's hard to see how they go forward. Which is remarkable know. considering... They're both conservative. They're both very conservative, yeah. you know, especially Liz Cheney's. Very conservative, um, but but is now being labeled by by uh, many Republicans as, as being a, a rhino or, or something or a Pelosi Republican. Republican thing, exactly. Maybe. So so uh, so the the story of the creation of this commission hmm. is, if you will, the anti story of the nine eleven commission. Instead of taking a step back and, and saying, okay, we we. We need we need a nonpartisan commission to investigate this. This has become partisan from the get go. And I'm I'm interested in your comment a minute ago about the delay in the 9/11 commission because it was more than a year after mm. 9/11. Maybe that was good, in the sense that having a little bit of time allowed allowed for cooler heads to you know prevail. But it, it's I'm not sure about that. And I I, I do, the difference between 9/11 and January 6 is of course 9/11 was a foreign terrorist attack mm. on the United States, whereas January 6th was a domestic terrorist attack on, on the United States and its institutions. And and therefore, um, the politics of, of January 6th are much more complicated than the politics of, of the 9-11 Commission. Oh, without a doubt, right. I mean, in some ways, by the time that the 9-11 Commission got to work, the United States military was already taking action to, to respond to the... 9-11 attacks. So, well, yeah. Well, the United Afghan States was already at war in Afghanistan, Afghanistan and was preparing to invade Iraq. Iraq. So they were already doing that, whereas I think in this case, the you know the, the, the work of, of the committee is very much connected to um, trying to ascertain who is responsible for the insurrection and, and try to hold people responsible in conjunction with you know, various criminal investigations that are happening at the same time. Does it matter that there's essentially no Republican cooperation with this? I'm of two my initially my response is to say yes, it's terrible. It's not going to have any credibility uh, with Republicans, and the the outcome mm. will be 
you know, it'll become a political football. We've already seen that, you know, with response. How anybody could object to the testimony on Tuesday or mock the testimony on Tuesday, mm. as, as some members of the Republican Party have done, mystifies me. But, but what, on one hand, you can say, well, without Republican cooperation, the, the, the results won't have any credibility, mm. particularly with the constituency that needs to hear this. On the other hand, I'm thinking about the the hearings, the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, sure. um, and you know if we had Jim Jordan throwing, interrupting people every two minutes while they're as I do on this mm. podcast to you, um, I interrupt you plenty. <laughs> right, too. You know, you know making a circus of it mm. and disrupting things. You know, we get plenty of drama on the news every night, but we wouldn't necessarily actually get to the bottom of things. So, in terms of our objective as historians which is to get things on the record maybe the fact that they've taken their ball and gone home is a good thing yeah and i think the quality speaking for future historians the quality of the evidence that they will collect is probably going to be much better um given what we've seen of jim jordan in other contexts um you know he, he would have interrupted the testimony on tuesday multiple times contradicting the the testimony of the of, of the, the officers about the events uh, on January 6th. So the fact that he's not in the, the committee, is, I think, is a good thing. Um, I mean, my impression is that Kevin McCarthy only appointed Jim Jordan because he wanted to scupper the whole thing. I mean, right, he wanted he, a bomb for a wrong... You don't... the wrong image. But... <laughs> may not be the wrong image. Um, um, but the question then is sort of, was the outcome of this committee going to be... We'll end up with a bunch of testimony, which will be useful for future historians, and I'm sure they will thank us in, in retrospect uh, for that. Um, we're not going to get any legislation, I don't think, just given the way the Congress works. Um, you know, one could envision a version of this in which the structure of policing in the Capitol is, is reformed in some way. Um, but in terms of meaningful legislation in, in the in the vein of the you know, Ku Klux Klan Act, we're, we're not going to end up with anything remotely like that. Um, the, and there are going to be, you know, thinking about my sort of categories of, of, of roles for these things, there are going to be tremendous political effects for this. Um, there's going to be effects for the Republicans who decided to participate, so there's going to be consequences for Liz Cheney and Ann Kinzinger. There's going to be consequences for uh Republicans who may be called to testify, they've talked about maybe calling former President Trump to testify. Um, they've, they've talked about potentially calling, calling other uh, And this committee has subpoena power. Uh, it yes. does have subpoena power. Um, I had a thought today, David. All right. Uh, this morning. I thought, what if Trump testifies? Now, now, obviously, if you were advising President Trump, giving him legal advice, even the clown car full of lawyers that is his legal team, mm. uh, you would say under no circumstances should you testify before this commission, committee. Um, although it would be interesting if he's subpoenaed what he will do. Um, I mean, he's ignored subpoenas in the past, but he did that when he was president. It's a little oh, he can go to jail like Thaddeus Hyatt and get right. people to cater his, his jail cell. <laughs> with, uh... However, I, I, I did have a thought. I thought, you know, the guy has no shortage of confidence in himself mm. and self-belief. And if he truly believes that nothing untoward happened on January 6th, mm -hmm. and that you know this was just an expression of love by his supporters, which is his current line, maybe he goes to testify because he loves the limelight. Yes. In a kind of Jack Nicholson in a few good men kind of way, you can't <laughs> handle the truth, thinking he can stare down, you know, he thinks... You know, um, Adam Schiff is a little wimp anyway and all this mm. kind of stuff. And and he does, you know, he craves the limelight. Maybe he will testify. I think his, his testimony would be very, very uh, harmful to him and to yes. his interests. But uh, he, maybe, he, maybe he'll do it. I don't think so. But uh, one, can, one can only hope. Because uh, that would be, that would provide some really excellent evidence for future historians or at least things that we can quote. Uh, uh, but in terms of how this plays out politically... It could go both. I think it can go either way, and, and I, I suspect, you know, given our current political moment, and based on what I've seen on social media, just in response to the testimony of those officers, mm. which would again seems to me, if you're coming at this from a nonpartisan standpoint, would seem to be unimpeachable and incredibly powerful. But you know, 
each side has already interpreted it in their own way, and that's that. And I think that's what will happen. We'll probably, in strict political terms, partisan political terms, be where we are today when this is when this thing is finished. Yeah, and that's not a good place, by the no, way. No, no, no. But, but, um, but I still I think it's important to do. I think it's important to get things on the record. And let's not forget there are also six hundred. There have been six hundred arrests. There are going to be a series of trials. Yes. In the coming months and indeed years of, of people who are involved in this and probably more arrests to come where things are going to come out as well. where people Because people who've been arrested saying, well, I went because the president told, told me to. to. Right. Um, and as one of the officers said on Tuesday, you know, this was this was like a hitman. You know, you got to figure out who hired the hitman. And and I think, you know, there he was asking the committee to, 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 to go above and beyond simply looking at the people who were in the Capitol to look at the the root causes that led them to, to do that, including the actions of, of President Trump. All right, Frank, it's time for Last Drops. What you got? Uh, I've got a, two things, David. I've got, two a, things. I've, got, I've got a last drop, and I have a question for you. Oh, so geez. I'll do my last drop. You do your last drop, and then I'm going to pose a question to you Fair that enough. came from a listener. Oh, so my last drop is I want to, I want to recommend there's an upcoming um, transatlantic symposium, sorry, symposium on transatlantic slavery and the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, that's going to be held from August 9th to 13th over the over those days. It's virtual, it's free, uh, and it's being sponsored by Mount Vernon, which was the home of George Washington, of course, Monticello, which was the home of Thomas Jefferson, and the Benjamin Franklin House in London. Oh, and I think this is quite interesting. I mean, it's a it's an all star lineup that includes um, Annette Gordon Reed and Manisha Sinha and Vince Brown, uh, Stephen Mullen from the University of Glasgow, who did such important work on on Glasgow's connection with slavery. It's it, it's a really Excellent. really it's a great lineup of people. But I also think it's interesting because it's bringing together people from these public history institutions, these historic homes, uh, are sponsoring it, and and we often. I think, you know, uh, Monticello and Mount Vernon both, um, they present themselves, of course, as the homes and the kind of representations of both Washington and, and, and Jefferson. But we sometimes forget, I think, and the public forgets, these were, of course, these are two of the slave plantations we know the most about mm-hmm. uh, because of their association with these individuals. And they're doing very, very good work in in recovering and promoting the history of enslaved people Um at those places and and in the United States and uh, early America more generally. So I think the symposium looks great. The program is great. You can find it if you go online to the websites for either Mount Vernon or, Mon- or, or Monticello. Um, but well, uh, yeah, I can, we'll have links in the show notes. For, yeah, for people can recommend to... that. So yeah, great. What's yours? Uh, I'm going to recommend a new podcast uh, by Slate uh, called One Year. Oh yes, this um, is great. Which uh, I guess they're going to do multiple seasons of this, but they're going to pick a year uh, for each season and, and look at news stories from that year that people may have forgotten and the year they have picked for their first year of uh, one year is 1977 and they've had a number of episodes already i've only had a chance to listen to a couple of them but on 1977 which is also the year that i i was born uh, so I'm interested in that. that yeah, it's a particular attraction to me because of that. And Frank is rolling his eyes. Yeah, yeah. Listeners, you can't see me rolling my eyes, but I'm rolling my eyes. Yeah, I mean, I listened to the first one on Anita Bryant and the dispute over gay rights in, in Miami. It was great. It was, I mean, Slate's podcasts are all pretty high good. quality. Yes. It's really, really good. It's Josh yeah. Levine, isn't it? I think so, yeah. Yeah, it's really, really good. Definitely yeah. worth listening to. Okay, I've had a question from a listener, David, which oh, is important. Uh, he's one of our most loyal listeners. Fair enough. All um right. And I know he's hearing this. Uh, it's it's a listener, Joe in London, okay. who, who who's a dedicated listener, uh, and he contacted me and asked for my advice about a question. Now, Joe is a very very he's a knowledgeable student of history. He's traveled extensively in the United States. He's British and lives in London, uh, and he's a big sports fan and sports international sports fan. And he asked me which baseball team he should start to follow. If he wants to follow seriously. Now, now let, let me explain his criteria. He ruled out the Yankees and Red Sox. Okay. Um, your and my team, respectively. Uh, teams, respectively. And the reason for that is, he, I see the analogy he made was, it's like deciding you're going to follow the Premier League and picking Liverpool or Man United. Mm. Uh, so he didn't, he didn't want to be a kind of glory hunter in mm. that way. And I think that's right. I think that that's absolutely right. Although, if he had to choose between the two, it's, the answer is obviously the Red Sox. Um, <laughs> but... Who should he support? Now, he and I had a, an exchange about this, and we, came, we, we whittled it down to three teams. Okay. And I want to know what you think about this. 
And we're talking about both history, so there's a history element to this, mm. but also culture. We're about bringing American culture to our British friends and listeners. So the three teams we, we narrowed it down to were the Angels, the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. Yes. Or Los Angeles Angels now. The Mets, the New York Mets. Mm-hmm. And the San Diego Padres. And I want to explain each of those and then okay. get your response. Uh, uh, I think the Angels are possibly the most exciting team right now because they got Shohei Otani, who's the most exciting player in baseball and a great, great story and plays pitches and plays in the field. Uh, they've Which also is not got something for non-baseball fans that's happened in a hundred years. No, not at this level. Um, not since Babe Ruth. <laughs> yeah, and 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 uh, and they've got Mike Trout, who's arguably the best player of this era he's injured at the moment but they you know and they're the second best team in their city uh in the sense that they they lag behind the Dodgers both mm. on the field but also just in their ter- terms of their their Q rating or their impact they're never going to overtake the Dodgers so you can't be accused of glory hunting and following the Angels so okay. I think the Angels are a good team to follow all right um the Padres you could say all the same things about the Padres they've got a really exciting young team they've never won the World Series They've right. never, you know, the you cannot be accused of being a glory hunter if you're supported the San Diego Padres, but they're really exciting right now. They're really good. And San Diego is a great city to visit if you want to go see a game. Eventually. Yes. Yeah. So, so I think the Padres are appeal. So those are my two. But I do think there's an issue with, especially if you live in Britain, the West Coast is eight hours behind mm-hmm. us. The time difference can be a problem. So, so there's a challenge there. The Mets. I want to make the case for the Mets, and I'm going to give you the, the oh, I'm going to turn okay. over to you. Uh, now we've become the morning zoo on sports radio. I realize yeah, we're not talking about the Olympics. Right? You, you can log out of this if you want to, people. But the Mets, I think the Mets are... So everything I like about New York is epitomized by the Mets. Everything I don't like about New York is epitomized by the Yankees. And so the new, all the New Yorkers I like, with the exception of you, support the Mets. Um, I, I think the Mets, the Mets have a really interesting history of both futility and glory. That yes. you, you know, so they and and. They're, they're always good, but they're never quite good enough at the moment. So, so you, again, you can't really be accused of glory hunting supporting the Mets. But they do have a plausible chance, especially under their new ownership right now, uh, of winning something. So mm. I, I think the Mets, I recommended the Mets. I think he's opting for the Angels. Do you? I, and the equivalent I made, I, I, I said the, the Mets, of course, they're in the metropolis as well, hence the name, uh, are analogous in football, in soccer, mm. to... Tottenham to, to Spurs here at Tottenham Hotspur in, yes. in the Premier League and that they're good they're in London they have star power but they don't actually win all that much but they're always in in there and they're, they're always in and about what do you think I, 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 I'll those are all good choices I, I, uh, I it's hard for me to endorse the Mets at any level but I those are all good choices um, two thoughts if, if he uh, as a, a British person and a subject of, of, of the Queen, they might want to consider the Kansas City Royals, <laughs> which of course are named also after uh, the, the Negro League team, the Monarchs. So there's there's a linkage there in a story. So uh, the, the, the... Well, yeah, but if you want subjects of the Queen, you can go for the Toronto Blue Jays. Jays. Oh, that's <laughs> also true. Yes, that's a good point. Um, I would actually recommend, and, and, and this is sort of spinning the question a bit, uh, picking a minor league team to follow. Yeah, because uh, minor league games are more fun to go to than major league games in some ways. It's good, fun to see players who are still really hungry and are young, much in the same ways as, as I know you like going and watching you know the Hearts play. Part of what makes that exciting to watch is because the players are hungry. Hearts, not the Hearts people. He's still American. I'm sorry. <laughs> right, you know, I, I see that, but but but. If you're going to follow it from the UK, okay. though, that's hard, though. It's harder. It does. It's hard. oh, but it, it, there's radio broadcasts that are, you can you yeah. listen. Go listen, you know, listen to and listen to baseball games on the radio is something very special, actually. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, so you can listen to, to a, a Durham Bulls game. You can watch the games online if you want to. Um, what about this? Okay. So Joe did not want to associate himself quite rightly with any teams that are associated with racist imagery and mascots. Yes. But Cleveland, and we've talked about racist mascots before, the Cleveland baseball team, which is has a name that's uh, associated with Native Americans, they've adopted a new name as of the new season. They're going to be the Cleveland Guardians from next season. Which is a reference to some statues that yeah. are on a bridge in Cleveland. Right. Um, 
my I wanted them to be the spiders. I wanted was, them to be the spiders too. But, but but why not brand new team? This is the time get in on the ground floor of the Cleveland Guardians next season. Sounds like a good option. Right. Yeah. Okay. All right. We're not sports radio, so we need to wrap, wrap this up. up. All right. but, uh, so Joe, you have options. Gins, yes. Um, so. But there's plenty of minor teams to pick. Yeah. So anyway, right. cheers. cheers. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes. 